Hello and welcome to the Parallax Podcast. My name is Rich Harity and on this episode we're going list crazy. Everyone loves a good top 10 film list and this time we're going to dig into the best films of the millennium so far. These are the films that have made a difference, films that will be remembered and films that we personally just love. Joining me on this trek through the last 15 years of film is critic and programmer Zach Hepburn. Zach, welcome. Mr. Harrity, always a pleasure to be here on the uh, the podcasting table to discuss culture and, and fine art and, and film. Yes, and I'm sure that we'll argue about some of our selections. Maybe some of them won't be the finest of culture, art or film that we have to <laughs> offer, but we'll see. So before we begin, let's chat about how we put these lists together. Because as with any list-building exercise, I've decided to set up a few arbitrary rules just to make things more annoying for us and for you, dear listener. I have decided to be that guy and make our millennium start from 2001 onwards, partially because I was that guy at parties in the year 2000 as well, but also because there were quite a few films made in the year 2000 that were really great, so it becomes a little easier just to not include them. I think were you subsequently not included on party invite lists? After, I, 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 uh, that, I missed a few 2001 parties because I was say, at the 2000 yeah. parties I, going like it's not actually let's, the millennium. Let's change. not get that guy back. Yeah, like, yeah, nah. yeah. even though I would have been hugely celebratory Huge, because that was the real millennium. Lots of fun at parties. Yeah. That's your that's your uh, your prison name. I'm I a ball of fun. Yeah. Um, so the other big random and pointless rule that I've come up with is that we can only include one film per filmmaker. So the pro of this rule is that. My own list now isn't simply a collection of Paul Thomas Anderson films, but the con here is that we've had to choose only one film from certain prolific or influential filmmakers. How have we made those choices? Well, that's going to be, I think, part of this conversation. And finally, it's worth noting that we have coordinated our lists to a degree, so we don't cross over and repeat certain films. This means that there may be films or filmmakers from my list that would have been on Zach's and vice versa. And I say this because I've kind of snagged the PTA and Cohen titles that I suspect would have appeared on your list. Yeah, look, I must admit that uh, you uh, you managed to get your list to me a little bit earlier than I did to you. And uh, when I saw a couple of uh, you, I was just like, son of a bitch. All right, fair enough. So, uh, but look, great great minds think alike, yes. as they say. Yes. And um, I don't know about you, but I'm going to add a disclaimer up front and say this list is entirely personal. It's um, These are kind of films from the last 15 years that have meant the most to me. They're films that I think about frequently. They're films that I think have pushed the form of cinema in new directions. And I guess the bottom line is these are some of my favourite films. And aside from all of that, as with any random list, it shall only apply to right now. I reserve the right to change my mind tomorrow, next week or next year. In fact, I think if we did this again next year, we'd probably come up with 10 completely different titles, which opens the possibility of of Of, uh, discussing more in the future... Of maybe some of the films that we've missed today, because well, there's a lot of films. As they say, time is a flat circle. So, you know, we, we may very well just come back to this same discussion and be completely different. We'll just do this podcast over and over with different films and... And, and different, you know. different different everything. You know, just, just, just different hats, different facial hair. We'll just yeah. change everything. Yeah. I, uh, the hats, particularly, I think yeah. will play up well to the podcast uh, audience. Exactly. Like. I think, uh, yeah. when, I, when I listen to podcasts, I, I think what kind of hat. Yeah, that they is, must is the be, voice wearing? Yeah, I, I, I feel like I, yeah. I feel like that my voice has kind of got a bit of a bowler hat thing going on. Yeah, you can, I could definitely. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go for uh, chimney sweep, okay. chimney sweep cap. Okay, chimney sweep, Zach. Let's get straight into it. Do it. Hang me, oh hang me, I'll be dead and gone. Hang me, 
oh hang me I'll be dead and gone I wouldn't mind the hanging But the laying in the grave So long, poor boy I've been all around this world And welcome back. Okay, now we're getting into the business end of list talking. And we'll go kind of, we've both got 10 films that we want to talk about, 10 films that we think are some of the best films from the last 15 years, and we'll go one for one. Yeah, and I uh, I think as you kind of mentioned in the intro, you know, these aren't really in any specific order, we're just kind of going to fire these off, so so don't see number one as being number one and number 10 being number 10, like, it's just just like... Ordering them would be, would have been a whole nother headache of working out what's one and what's 10, I don't even, I can't even start. And we've both got day jobs and lives that we can't kind of like leave in order to, to sort this list. Out. It's like oh, a day yeah. off from work. Yeah. Sorry, I'm making yeah. a list. Yeah, sorry, I've got to do that. So, okay, let's start off. Like, the, the first film out of my 10 that I think is one of the best films of the last 15 years. Hit me. The Act of Killing, mm. the documentary by Joshua Oppenheimer from 2013, which I it, I think is, is a stunning film. I think it's a stunningly influential film. I think that it's a film that will reverberate over the future of mm. documentary filmmaking. It, it really felt like a nuclear explosion in the genre in mm. terms of what a documentary can be and how a documentary can have not only an agenda, but also a really discomforting kind of moral stance for the viewer. I, mm. I This film occupied a huge amount of my brain. It kind of took mm. residence in my brain for months in 2013 after I saw it. I saw it several times more and it kind of rocked me to my core I've, I've never seen anything like it mm. and it bordered that line of kind of lurid exploitation and philosophical art cinema in a way that I'd never seen before mm. and his follow-up film The Look of Silence which I think is a a, a really beautiful film and it, it's a, in many ways a, a more tight film mm. than The Act of Killing and, and some would say a better film but I like the looseness to The Act of Killing and I like the expanse of it and the the tangents that it takes yeah. and, and and it's almost kind of that messiness is is an asset to me whereas the look of silence is a much more refined and encapsulated tight film but yeah, yeah the act of killing I, I couldn't go past it look anything that uh, has Errol Morris and uh, Werner Herzog singing his praises and, yeah. and, and also you know uh, somewhat uh, closely involved with the production of the film as well too it's just um, it's an astounding piece and yeah I think I agree with you the, the, the surrealness factor in the film is what really kind of separates it from the look of silence. I mean, I think yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, and it's also fantastic to see that look of silence is such a great bookend yeah. to uh, Act of Killing as well, too. But for me, Act of Killing really was just this sort of like you know absolute punch to the face that you don't get uh, very often. Um, particularly seeing it at the cinema too uh, really takes oh. it because because the audience uh, interaction with the film you can really gauge that in the cinema and those those moments of extreme uncomfortableness that the audience is you can just kind of hear a pin drop in the auditorium when you see it so uh, yeah. yeah no I completely agree I think it's great that uh, you know we're seeing documentary which for so long just turned into archival clip montage with talking head versus archival clip montage with talking head yeah. turned into this weird impressionistic form yeah. which, which I yeah. think Oppenheimer did so well with that film so that I think very worthy of uh, of your picking, Mr. Thank Harry. you. Oh, we're at such a civil start. Oh, here we go. Uh, okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw uh, mine into the ring, and I'm gonna say Into the Wild, the okay. film uh, by Sean Penn uh, with uh, Emil Hirsch. I just there's something about this film that just 
speaks to me. I, I, I just I love the sort of grandiose gesture that it is. It, it's so sort of earnest okay. in the way it plays out. Uh, but also kind of heartbreaking in, in the same way of, you know, kind of rejecting society, but also completely and utterly embracing it on the same time. And, uh, and it's and it's stuck with you since then? Because, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's a, it's a good film. It's mm. a strong film, but I never would have thought of it for a list of kind of the best films no, of I the think, last kind of 15 years. You know, it kind of really reminded me of, I was a big fan of the film Wild, which came out quite the recently, with the Reese Witherspoon yeah. one. So uh, your eyes almost a little popped out of your head then when I said I, that as well. I, I, um, I'm really surprised at the tangent you're going no, down. But no, both of them just for me really kind of encapsulate a, a, a weird sort of mysticism with the uh, American West yeah. and, and the the American sort of landscape where you, you equate that to uh, a certain sense of freedom but you're really kind of, you know, trapped in your own uh, mind and body as well too. Kind of like and, a reversion to that beat sensibility. Yeah. Just it, like just... Throw all your possessions yeah. away and hit the road. Well, that's the thing. Like for me, and you know, obviously that they do end in in, in different sort of fashions. They, but they end quite but, differently. But, quite differently. But for me, this is the most kind of pure on-screen version of On the Road. Uh, okay. Like I just, yeah. it really yeah, well, the actual film version of On the Road. I don't think was no exactly. I think I think you know I think you know the while really taps into that sort of zeitgeist of of you know rejecting everything that you think is uh, keeping you prisoner, but then realizing that you're keeping yourself. Yeah, a, a prisoner, and I just, I just, I just really kind of love that conceit. So yeah, you know, and I think Sean Penn is a really uh, underutilized director too. Like I'm a really big fan of the Pledge. Yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed the Crossing Guard as well too. So I, I just really like Sean Penn's uh, directorial vision. So uh, heard reports of his latest film from Khan. Well, look, that's not on any. Li- that's not on any list, is it, Rich? Like, <laughs> okay, okay. Little, like, you know, maybe if we come back in ten years, we might be talking about that film. But no, no, we're going to talk about Eddie Vedder and Into the Wild. So. Okay, let's- yeah. Stick with that. Okay, then I'll go on to my second film then. Please. The, the second film I want to talk about today. Uh, and this was a really difficult film to pin down because this is my Coen Brothers film. So there's mm. a few Coen Brothers films that I had to choose from over the last 15 years. It's really interesting too because they're a filmmaker group that I think w- w- had no misfires before the 2000s. Yeah. <laughs> and then... When the, two, the millennium came around, they started to kind of maybe just fall short of some things. But yeah. anyway, please. They had a very rocky path, I think, in the yep. early 2000s. Like, but the film that I've come down on as the film that I'm going to include in my 10 is Inside Lewin Davis. I, and I, I'm, I would, you know, yeah. completely agree with you in that fact. I mean, that film is astounding. Yeah, I mean, I, it's hard to call it their masterpiece because I think that they've got several masterpieces mm. in their filmography. But, you know, I was kind of tossing up between that or No Country for Old Men or even A Serious Man which I'm incredibly fond of yeah that's a great kind of counterpoint to this film too I think A Serious Man like yeah entirely but I think Inside Lewin Davis is just that it's not a cynical film it's a very genuine and Mm. sincere film and a film that loves the process of artistic creation Mm. but it's also got this sense of what's the point of it all Mm. and I I just I I loved it. It stuck with me so long. I I think that the the music in it is deployed brilliantly. Yeah. Um. I think it was the birth of Oscar Isaac. Who? Oh, completely. You know, like look at look at him now. Yeah. Like it, it's amazing what yeah. has come from this film. And I and I just think it's a it's just a magical piece of film mm. that really taps into that idea that I think we all have 
when we feel like we're really good at something, but the world doesn't appreciate it. Oh, completely. And it's just, it's so sort of bittersweet in that regard too. And, you know, you've got the, just the same sort of tangents that it goes on to, like you have John Goodman pop up in a, a really kind of oh, yeah. memorable yeah. role. But I also love the idea, I remember reading some pieces about the film when it came out, because it was, you know, fairly well received, but some people were kind of like, I don't, I don't, I don't understand this film. I don't get oh, yeah, what it's yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah. But I love the idea of like, it looks at, you know, creative partnerships and you look at the Coen Brothers as a creative partnership and, and anyone who hasn't seen the film obviously without spoiling it it does look at what happens when you have a very successful creative partnership and then you lose one part of that partnership and you're kind of left to pick up the pieces is this a story of what the Coen brothers would be like if they didn't create work together I mean it's it, yeah. it's a it's a really layered film and I mean that in, you know in the most non-cliched way like it's just a film that just keeps giving you every time you watch it. and I think I agree the music is utilized so well it's not corny it, you know any period film that try to you know, looks at those things always goes, oh, and here's the Bob Dylan song, or here's this. But oh, totally. it, it yeah, weaves yeah. all that in so well that well, um, I mean, the way that it, it weaves in, kind of the the not, it's not an actual cameo from Bob Dylan, yeah. but but the references to Bob oh, Dylan yeah. at that point in time. Mm. But again, that idea of you're in a creative field and lots of people are becoming successful, mm. but you're not, not becoming successful, yeah. and it's not at all due to the fact that you're not good. I, I, I love that idea yeah. because how many times do people just like sit around kind of bitching about who becomes successful and yeah. who doesn't yeah. and it's not necessarily related to pure talent no. and it like I think this film That's... encapsulates that idea so well yeah. It, it's like yeah it's an amazing film absolutely brilliant uh, well, it's interesting to talk about Bob Dylan because I'm going to use this to segue okay. into uh, another one on my list. Is I'm not there. the The Todd Haynes uh, Bob okay. Dylan biopic, which was sort of unfilmable in some ways until you get five different people playing five yes. different versions yeah. of Dylan. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be upfront. I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan. I'm, I love all the different eras of Bob Dylan. And for me, this film really is incredibly intelligent about how it tackles that chameleon aspect of Dylan by getting different performers to play him yeah. across different periods. Obviously, you have Cate Blanchett with the Highway 61 revisited sort of, uh, you know, highly drugged up Dylan. Uh, you've got uh, a really interesting uh, part with Richard Gere playing this sort of mystic <laughs> Bob Dylan, uh, you know, in the Old West. Uh, yep. You've also got Heath Ledger playing the more sort of like homely Dylan as I suppose you would call it when he was settled down in, into into a relationship and, and sort of marriage. The, the, the film's kind of sprawling in that regard. Um, there's even like, you know, a young boy playing that sort of like folkloric Dylan of the sort of like, you know, the, the bluesman and the railways and stuff like that. It's incredibly versed in, in Dylanology, which I think if you're not a Bob Dylan fan, you probably didn't appreciate or wouldn't pick up on. But I think it really is a sort of full stop on, on capturing uh, a larger-than-life true character on screen. Uh, you know, we see so many sort of music biopics of, of you know, Ray Charles or, or whoever. Totally. And, yeah. and they, they have this sort of really kind of boring structure of like a Lifetime of the Week movie. Where, you oh, know, totally. That uh, structure of a, of a musical biopic. Yeah. I mean, even when it's done well, like kind of, I think, the James Brown one, yep. Get On Down, I think. Was, yep, yep. That was that great. Was, yep. it, was, it was a fun film to watch but yep. it still is the formula it, yeah it's, it's yeah and <laughs> this film i think did so well i mean you know uh, keeping with dylan's sort of lifestyle you know yep. doing nothing by normal standards this yep. film is anything but normal and i think so fitting to its kind of central topic so yeah if, you, if you're a dylan fan and you thinking you might want to get into dylan uh i think i'm not there is a, a really interesting starting point i think that's yeah that's a great choice yeah. i'm See, I'm back with you. Yeah, again. back with me. Hey. Leave Pender one side. <laughs> Bring back Bobby. 
Okay, my third film that I want to talk about is The Wolf of Wall Street. And Didn't we just do a whole episode about this? <laughs> we did. We've, we've spoken about Scorsese quite a bit recently. But um, worth, 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 worth. But I, I, the more I dig into this film and the more that I think about it, the more that I feel it's not only one of the best films of the 21st century, but I think it's one of Scorsese's best films. I, yep. I would probably put The Wolf of Wall Street in his top five films. Yep. I think it's an incredibly important film in his filmography. Mm-hmm. I think it's a film that is so 21st century and now. Like I think it works so well now as, as a comment on everything that the 21st century is about for yep. good and bad. Yep. And as a piece of cinema, I think it's amazing. I think it's amazing that we got a film like this out of Scorsese in his 70s. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, you know, as you kind of mentioned with the Coen Brothers too, you know, the, the, the 2000s, I think, for Scorsese were a little bit of an interesting period where, you know, kind of going back to your kind of roots with, yeah. you know, uh, music bios as well, music concert films, uh, also stuff like The Departed. Uh, you well, know, that's I was, the thing. It, yeah. it wasn't difficult for me to choose a Scorsese no, film. No, no. Because, because there's... A lot of people, I think, rate The Departed very highly. Yeah, I would I, yeah. never have considered it in my kind of favourite films of the 21st century at all. And in the sort of wake of the, all the Scorsese conversations that everyone's having at the moment, I keep getting told by people, oh, you know, The Departed, it's the third piece of that trilogy with, like, you know, Goodfellas and Casino. I was like, no, no it's no. not. The Wolf of Wall Street is. Yeah. No, so, no, anyone that says that can shut up. Yeah. Like, they're, they're no. 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 Just no, you're wrong. Yeah, no, yeah. you're wrong. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think The Wolf of Wall Street is, is a magnificent film. Yeah. And it was just, like... I couldn't go past it. I, I think it's a film that I, I'm still re-watching and it's a film that I will re-watch and I think it's a film that in 20 or 30 years will be seriously considered as a contender for, yeah. for film canon. Yeah, and I, I completely yeah, agree. And I think it's really important. So what's your number three? Speaking about outlaws, uh, I'm going to take us back to the Old West and I want to talk about the assassination of Jesse James by okay. the coward Robert Crawford. Yes. I love this film. I absolutely adore it. I think it's a film that was completely overlooked it was. upon release. It was. Uh, criminally so. Uh, and it still is, I think, to this day. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't Underseen by people. Yeah. Um, it is long. It is sprawling. Uh, it's uh, a, an epic in, in the most grandiose fashion of looking at a, a figure like Jesse James and really deconstructing it, but also looking at the world around him and how he sort of moves through uh, the world and, and, you know, kind of untouched, but also touching everybody he sort of engages with. Um, I think Brad Pitt is amazing in the film. I think Casey Affleck is amazing in the film. Um, Even though Affleck's doing his best broken voice Casey (laughs) Affleck impersonation, which I know a lot of people have a problem with. But Andrew Dominic, I think, is such an, an amazingly visually kinetic filmmaker. And I remember seeing the trailer for this film prior to its release with this amazing narration with the Nick Cave and Warren Ellis score playing behind them these fantastic shots of this kind of classic you know revisionist western yep. kind of look you know th- th- this film is sort of like you know the byproduct of uh, a Sam Peckinpah film meets a, like a you know a, a late John Huston film I think like I, I just think it's absolutely sumptuous the way it looks and it's also got a lot to say about celebrity and yeah. the way that we get infatuated with myth and the way we get infatuated with uh, people that are seen to be superior to us is it a film that you 
revisit or think about? I often rethink. I mean, I do. I, I listen to the soundtrack a lot. I think it's an yeah. amazing piece of film score, uh, and it is a film that I I think is a big screen experience. So I do try to check and catch it every time I can on the big screen. Yeah. Um, but it's certainly something I have in my uh, you know home collection that that gets popped on. Yeah. It, well, and and, and uh, Dominic's Killing Them Softly was yeah. one that was skirting kind of my longer list here too. And I think Killing Them Softly is a stunning film. Again, completely misunderstood upon its release and yes. completely sort of overlooked. Uh, so. I'm really hopeful that he gets to still continue to make works that uh, are this subversive. He's struggling struggling. from film to film, but every film that he's doing, like he's really building up a body of work Mm. that I think is going to be looked back upon as significant. And he's doing it under the radar and not really getting paid attention too much. So yeah, I'm so glad you put this film in there. It's really funny because one of my back in the day working in a video store experiences was recommending this film to someone that stupidly asked for my recommendation. And this was back when I used to give recommendations. No, yeah. And I said, well, you should try this film. I, yeah. I think it's a really good film. Yeah. I don't know if you'll like it, considering that your rental history is Chuck Norris action films. But I did it anyway, because they asked me for my recommendation. <laughs> he rented it, yeah. came back 45 minutes later, came back to the store, yeah put it on the counter and went, this is crap. I want something else. You've ruined my night. Yeah, totally. Like it made the effort to not, to stop it after 45 minutes, get in his car, come back to the video store and have a word with me for recommending such a bad film. So that was the last time I ever recommended a film. And people, do you get to have that sort of audience engagement with streaming platforms? That, 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 I mean, that, that's yeah. sort of who like... Gonna who are you going to yell at recommends a piece of crap to you? Just like. press stop. You can't go and yell at a human. <laughs> really. So my number four, my, my fourth film that we'll talk about today is Upstream Colour from 2013, the Shane Carruth film. Do you get this often thrown at you on the street too in DVD? <laughs> I mean, DVD comes like, you've ruined my night again, Harry. It's, it's not a film that I kind of comfortably <laughs> often recommend to people yeah. because I, I recognise it as a pretty inaccessible and difficult film. I, 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 I love it. I'm so glad you've got this on there. So tell me more about it. Look, this was a film that I, I wasn't particularly enamoured by Carruth's first film, Primer. No. I was in kind of one of those minorities of... of film geeks that I thought Primer was too complicated for its own good mm. and Shane Carruth has a background in, in mathematics at yeah. a university level yes. so you know this is a guy that, that constructs his films on such a schematic and complex <laughs> level yeah. that, and you could see that with Primer Primer felt like it was it was yeah. learning maths oh. while watching a film I felt when I was watching Primer that I was part of a conversation that I shouldn't be a part of. I'd walked into a room and yeah. like, yeah, you, you know what we're talking about, this, isn't that? Yeah, like, you keep up. Yeah, yeah, sure I do. Sure, yeah. But no, or, or you know, someone would say, if you just listen to this conversation a few more times, you'll maybe understand it, which is always what the the Primer fans would say. It's like, oh no, you've got to watch it a few times to get it. And I'm like, I don't... I don't get it. If I don't get something initially yeah. or don't get anything out of something initially, what's yeah. compelling me to watch, watch it? Watch it again. And it's like, oh, no, the fifth time you watch it, it really comes together. It's like, I'm not going to watch something five times to understand it. No. I think Upstream Colour, 
it has this really interesting thing of it is still very schematic, but he managed to kind of pick up almost this Malick style evocative visual style, visual flow throughout the entire film. Yep. It's a beautiful film to look at. The mm. score, which he kind of co-wrote, is amazing too. Yep. And just on a formal level, the way that it tells its story is unlike anything I've ever seen. Yeah. Like, like it breaks all rules of narrative convention mm. you can ever imagine. So much so that it act, it is challenging to watch, especially yeah. on first viewing. Totally. I did get enough out of my first viewing, though, to mm. revisit. And revisiting it, it becomes more and more clear what the film's doing. Yeah. And the story's actually, to me, now, kind of four or five viewings in, mm. is really clear. It's just incredibly bizarre. Mm. It's a strange story, but it's also a story that... To me, it's almost kind of like a, an absolute atheist story, but but magically atheist. Mm. He's talking about kind of cycles of life yep. in this film, but doing it in a way that is still very kind of mathematic and schematic. Yeah, and in, kind of pragmatic in the way it kind yeah, of lays it out. Yeah, but there's still wonder in it, mm. which is just, it's an amazing film well, to I me. Well, I think that wonder element is what separates it from Primer because, you know, you've just mentioned that you, you've rewatched Up Upturn Colour yeah. you know, a, a, quite a few times and you found that to be a, a pleasant sort of experience because yeah. it is something all, a, a pleasant in, in the most sort of broadest sense. But it, it kind of gives you something, whereas I think, yeah, Primer, you, the more you watch it, the more you just kind of get like laboured by it and you're kind of like, this is just an exhausting experience. Whereas I think Upstream the more you watch it, you really just kind of spread your rings with it. Yeah. I mean, and you know, at first, it, it, it's an incredibly creepy movie when it opens as well, too. Like, it's just like the way yeah. that the, the, the sort of lives intersect. And it's, I think it's a film that really just rewards multiple viewings. And I know that is such a, a, a sort of um, cliche thing to oh, say, but yeah. it really it really does. It, it, it's, it's something that I think, you know, if you're looking at a filmmaker's work like a painting, if you, every time you kind of revisit that work, it gives you something new. Yeah, and like I said, I would never want to be that guy that says you need to watch this multiple times to get it. If you mm. don't get enough of value out of a single viewing, then you know don't bother with continually watching it. Yeah. But I think that there is a lot in this, and it rewarded me at every point in in the mm. reviewing of it, and mm. it and it expanded in its meaning as it. And like I said, just on a formal level, the way he tells this story and structures mm. this movie is unlike anything I've ever seen. Yep. And that's why I kind of had to include it as a... This is a 21st century film. This mm. is a new way of telling stories. Mm. And it's a film unlike anything I've ever seen. Uh, on the topic of people getting angry at you uh, <laughs> and films that aren't uh, linked to formal convention, uh, I want to talk about Tree of Life. Oh. Um, Terry Malick. You remember him? I do. I was, yeah, I was surprised so... that you put this in your tent. Yeah. Not that it's not an important or influential or... or quite great film but what I didn't expect I s- Zach Hepburn what can I say I just like the idea of floating gas bulbs uh, <laughs> linking in with linking in with dinosaurs and uh, the American Southwest uh, look I think this film for me I, it, it, there is an ethereal beauty to it and I know that that's what Malik is trying to achieve with it, and I think he does extremely well with it um, I like that it's tangential in the way that it deals with its narrative I feel something like The Thin Red Line which I really love as well yeah it, it, you know, Malik has been building and building and building to what I think Tree of Life did. It's definitely peak Malik, and then yeah. now everything 
after Tree of Life feels like an imitation of Tree of Life from Malick. I entirely agree with that. Yeah. That's a really, yep. Yeah. yeah, so I think that this is really where you, you get these filmmakers who are working away on themes and, and the way... And refining And refining them, like, yep. Yeah. And this just hits it, I think. And I think, you know, Pitt as the sort of abusive father versus the damaged sort of Sean Penn. And I do know, apparently, there is a lot of uh, extra scenes with Sean Penn uh, in a different cut or that were on the cutting room floor because some people have commented that the, the, the kind of uh, Sean Penn art feels a little bit slapdashed or rushed in yep. compared to the, the kind of Brad Pitt arc and the family arc. But as a piece of just, uh, you know, immersive filmmaking, I think I think it's incredible. And I just, I really appreciate the, the style and form that's gone into it. And I think it's it, it's a filmmaker's signature. And I, I don't oh, think totally. you get to see them very often nowadays. So. Well, I think it's a great counterpoint to Upstream Colour, which... To me, like I said, is an incredibly atheistic film. Yes, but yes. it takes Marvel in in the magic of kind of evolution and, yep. and processes. Whereas Tree of Life, it's it's a very religious film. Mm. Like this, yes. like Terrence Malick is is a Christian, yes. and this is a very godly film. Mm. And it you that both films use similar strategies to just evoke wonder in the world. And yep. I, and I think that yeah, as the two films as a parallel to each other are really achieving similar things yeah. but based out of totally different belief structures which yeah. is kind of fascinating yeah I would completely agree with that so my number five and I had a lot of trouble with this these yeah this, this film <laughs> that I'll choose like so basically there's two Alfonso Cuaron films that from the last 15 years that I think are brilliant yes um and I had a lot of trouble deciding which one I want to put on my list. Mm-hmm. And I, up until actually today, I had Gravity. Oh, yes. Yeah, I was going to say that was that was that, that was on was the list, list that I gave you. You, you showed me pre-recording. Yes, so okay. I had Gravity on that list, and I had a little bit of a head scratch about that. I was going to talk to you about that, but all right, okay. Well, I'll stick with me. Let's go. Yep. I've, I've jumped to Children's Children. Good. Yeah. Good. Good. I'm glad about that. Damn Good. It, I wish Good. I hadn't changed. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Like, I don't like being so agreeable. <laughs> so, <laughs> so look, the reason I had Gravity initially yep. was that I think that. Gravity is an amazing visceral roller coaster ride of a film yeah. that I think is so 21st century. I think it's a film that couldn't exist without technology. Mm. And I think it's a film that utilizes technology in a perfect way. Mm. I think it uses 3D perfectly. Mm. I think it uses certain technological conceits to create kind of really extended shots in ways that could never have been achieved before now. I think it's a, an amazing experience of a film, yeah. which is why I initially had it as my... <laughs> and then I bounced back to Children of Men because I think the Children of Men is probably a more substantial and a more important film mm. and a film that I've thought about more and will probably revisit more. Well, this this was my would have been my argument yeah. uh, why I think Children of Men is, is superior uh, in, in, in terms of longevity. Because, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I really enjoyed... I saw Gravity twice in the cinemas and I overtly enjoyed it and that the, the was, two, and, that was I, yeah. I, and I have never ever really thought about that film again yeah. but Children of Men I've revisited a number of times and I think you know Clive Owen is just so good in that movie like, it's and, pretty great and Michael Caine is fantastic in it as well too and there's just this there's a, an incredible weariness to that film which I think is so difficult to catch like the, the characters in Children of Men just look wrecked like they look like they've been through the ringer but they keep pushing on and they keep yeah. going forward in the story and I think that that's just um, it, 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 an incredible kind of comment on the human race well and also aesthetically yeah. I oh, think course, Quaron yeah. achieved some amazing things mm. with 
cinematographer Emmanuel Luzbecki who yep. did Tree of Life as yes, well. Of course, like we've yep. both got a Luzbecki film. Of course, well, I think I think that's a prerequisite, isn't it? Like, is it? I don't yeah, think you so. can talk about film over the last fifteen years without at least at some point bringing up Luzbecki. Yeah, because he's achieved some pretty amazing stuff. Yep. And what he what he and Quaron did in in Children of Men, some of some of those shots and some of those set pieces are so amazingly executed, mm. and it's so well a fusion of form and content in mm. terms of creating kind of an experience that reflects the ideas that are being yep. being reflected in the film. I, I think it's a, a stunning film. So yeah, I had to fall back to Children of Men. Yeah. I think Children of Men no, is, I think, I think you is made a the much more choice. influential film. I'm glad I got your approval. Yeah, so. yeah what's your number five? Uh, well, talking about kind of flip-flopping between directors, uh, this one I... St- I didn't struggle with it. It was the first one that came on my mind when okay. I, I wanted to touch on this. Go with your instinct. Um, and then I actually went, oh, I wonder why I've chosen that one. Uh, the film is The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Okay. Uh, which is uh, a Wes Anderson film. I've been waiting for this uh, moment, actually. Yeah. Since you sent me the list, um, I've been waiting to talk about this. I... Um, I, I like everyone. I first came to Anderson, I think, with, with probably Rushmore. I'd heard of Bottle Rocket, but I hadn't seen it. Yeah. So I, I saw Rushmore first. For me... Life Aquatic is this weird kind of uh, mashup of a Wes Anderson film with the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai, <laughs> which is a film that I really love. And it looks at the idea of putting a team together. And I think as, you know, Anderson for me is always a kid playing like he's a he's, yeah. a he's a kid that's sort of like you know you as you're a kid you build up these immaculate sort of worlds that you, you yeah. you're either building them yourself or you're drawing them or you're doing something and for me this is the ultimate world and team building movie because everything is like we're going to go and do this we're going to do this and who's that guy over there and get this guy from there and let's get that and let's shoot this it's just for me again talking about a, um, a pure uh, kind of expression of a filmmaker I know a lot of people will probably say Royal Tannenbaums is that with, with Anderson well, that would have been my first response yeah, to say but Royal Tannenbaums I just love The Life Aquatic because it's just so kind of instinctually childlike in the way that it deals with like things okay. and the way that it sort of pitches itself i just i just love it i think it's infectious and it it's got a fantastic gold bloom in it it's oh, got it's like gold bloom hits a dog with a newspaper in it i mean if that's not if that's not peak gold bloom i don't know what it is i yeah, no, see anderson does good gold bloom with grand budapest ah uh, no like, so that 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 pales in comparison to whoa, this whoa 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 yeah, whoa, yeah, yeah, yeah no yeah, no settle yeah. down here because <laughs> look live aquatic to me was the beginning of 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 the end of my love affair with most people would say that yeah yeah like i i, I kind of yeah had the rushmore tannenbaums thing and yep. was like wow where's anderson he's yep. a thing and then life aquatic was this film that i was so distanced by and it mm. felt like it was the beginning of that stretch of films by anderson where he just got obsessed with with manicuring his compositions mm. and creating a sense of artifice that mm was to no end at all in terms of satisfying the viewer or doing anything of thematic function. And See, yeah, I, always, I, I felt- still think that Life Aquatic is the epitome of that. <laughs> and it's so weird that you chose it because I, I think it's the least of any film that he's made over the last 15 years. I just, you know, because the character of, of, of Steve Zissou, played by Bill Murray, is so kind of disenfranchised and disinfected by the world around Bill him. Murray. It's good Bill that. Murray. But I love that, you know there's so much going on around him that he just doesn't connect with and then by that way there's so much going around that the audience doesn't connect with the film because there's too much going on so like there's this weird sort of like you know uh, plus and minus kind of thing I don't know it's, it's like, look out of every film that we're discussing this is the one that's had the most discussion about it so clearly there's got to be something going on with no, the life aquatic or just go and check out Buckaroo Banzai that's an amazing <laughs> film you take anything yeah, so, <laughs> let's pull it, an it, 80s film yeah. out of that 
W.D. Richter made one film. I'll pay that. Yep. Okay. You're not going to pay it, I know. (laughs) And all at once I knew, I knew at once, I knew he needed me. Until the day I die, I wanna why I knew he needed me. It could be fantasy, oh, or maybe it's because he needs me, 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 he needs me. The next kind of batch of films that I want to talk about. We'll start off with, again, probably the most difficult decision that I've had to make in this whole thing, which is which Paul Thomas Anderson film will I put. And I'm just going to cut to the chase. It's Punch Drunk Love. Okay. I think Punch Drunk Love is the best film that he's made in the last 15 years for me. And I (laughs) I add the for me because Mm. I know There Will Be Blood is brilliant film and it's a masterpiece yeah. and I think the master is amazing and Inherent Vice which is probably the closest to usurping Punch Drunk Love yeah. in kind of my favourite Anderson film of recent times yeah. but it always had to come back to Punch Drunk Love it's a film that I revisit frequently yeah. it's a film that every time I watch I, I adore yeah. I think that it is the, the, the loosest of Anderson's films. Yep. And, and I say that in light of Inherent Vice too, but I think Inherent Vice has got a... No, a Inherent Vice has got a structure, in, in, yes. in, in, even the even though it has no structure, it has yeah. a structure in terms of there's a central story and to it. And like, there's precision yeah. to the shagginess of it. Yeah. Like, yeah. he knows exactly what he's doing, yeah. even though it feels shaggy. Mm. Armstrong Love is a really loose film. Yeah. It's, a, it's a loose film in the best possible way. Mm. It's a film that is probably the least derivative of mm. Anderson films in terms of you, it's hard to find a precedent. Like mm. a lot of them you can go, this is Anderson's Altman riff or this is Anderson's Kubrick riff yeah. versus Anderson's Scorsese riff. Yeah. Punchdrunk Love, I don't know what he's riffing. No, no, and I would, I would agree with you in that respect. You know, I think it is uh, the way it deals with color is also uh, amazing. Yes. Uh, you know, having those sort of like interstitial uh, color watches. Yeah, and and the way that that sort of just puts a full stop on the sort of moments that are in the film yeah. too. Like, you know, well, the, the color swirl comes at the end of that. Bit, and oh, we'll and the next. John Bryan's like yeah. weirdly atonal kind of yeah. score that yeah. just pops in and out at odd moments, yeah. and it it was semi improvised, and it. It just really gets mm. you into the headspace yeah. of the character, and I think it was mm. like it was the first serious Sandler performance. I was going to say it features the ghost of Adam Sandler, doesn't it's it? A, I mean, well, that's, looking, yeah. looking back now, it's, yeah, it's, that's, it's, that was it. Yeah, like, it was, um, it look, I, that, you know. I, I, I don't know if I could have made the same decision up against There Will Be Blood. I unequivocally adore There Will Be Blood. Do you do you rewatch There Will I Be Blood? Really? I do. Oh, yeah. Okay. See, I, I, I don't. I regularly have there will be blood on in the background. Do I wouldn't say I sit down and watch the, like, but you know, it's one of those things like you know, you put it on and you kind of. Do so you just like hearing like Day Lewis in the background. I just, just I just, you, just yelling. Yeah, like, I just you know, I just something about that film, uh, you know, potentially says more about me. But I, I just, I really, <laughs> really dig there will be blood. Like I just, I just something about it. it just, it's like it just. Every time I can watch it, I can. Okay. Uh, I even put there will be blood on when I was on a plane. 
And really? it was an option. It's so odd that you find it a relaxing film, even. I find oh, it's not it relaxing. Oh, but I just, I just, I just, I never said it was relaxing. Okay. Um, yeah, well, um, but um, no, look, I, um, I, but I, look, I think they're both an amazing piece of work from from, from Anderson, yeah. uh, and I think that they they really do speak to different sides of the brain, yes. which I love about yeah. like how you can follow. Like they they, they were made fairly you know fairly close in his filmography together. So well, you know. well close ish. I mean, yeah. Punch Drunk Love was two thousand two, yeah. and there was a gap. There was a five year gap. Five year five year gap. Yeah. There's there's also like a it, it represents a transition point. I think yes. in in Anderson's filmography, he became a slightly different filmmaker post Punch Drunk Love. And yes. There would be blood did start a certain kind of austerity to mm. his aesthetic and yes. a certain seriousness to what he was thinking about doing as a filmmaker, mm. um, which is why, in hindsight, I, I look back even more fondly at Punch Drunk Love. It's yeah. kind of the last bastion of a youthful Anderson yeah. just just riffing and creating comedic stuff in ways that has no other function other no. than just joyfulness. Yeah, like, yeah completely. Ah, yeah. Well, there's some, speaking about filmmakers who potentially put a full stop to their filmography <laughs> after uh, a certain film. I'm going to talk about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Okay. Um, this is by far and away the only Michelle Gondry film that I like. Well, it's it's probably the only Charlie Kaufman film that I like. There you go. How's so, that? yeah. Mm. Uh-huh. Um, and look, I think, that, again, it, it, it kind of is the perfect marriage of uh, a visual filmmaker working with a sort of very literate filmmaker like Kaufman. Uh, you know, I just it just kind of just... Entirely. It, they, yep. they, they just both merge. And I think subsequently both of them have gone off on these two different career tangents. And, you know, uh, Kaufman's work is just so incredibly bogged down by being intelligent yeah. or, you know, or, or trying to be intelligent. And Gondry stuff is just too wacky. Yeah, and yeah, too yeah. visual. Gondry so. brought, I think, a lightness of touch to Kaufman's quite, yeah. quite heavy depressiveness yeah. that that often infuses his his films. And I mean, look, see, a time, see Anomalisa, which is like yeah. a pretty depressive film. There's a time and a place for both of them, I think. But I think this is the perfect marriage. Uh, Jim Carrey, I think, has never been better in a in a in a yeah. quasi serious role. I, 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 I love Truman Show. But, I, look, yeah. I, I, it's one film. That's one film I I really don't get. But we'll we'll, 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 we'll talk about we'll talk that's about that the, another yeah. time. Yeah. Um, but I I look I, I think Kate Winslet's great in it. Um, I just love the conceit of it. I think it's such mm. it, it's an, a, so original in its concept. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's just one of those great works of pop culture uh, montaging as well too. Like, you know, you, you see these fantastic little things. You know, so there's Tom Waits records in the background and there's yep. all these other little things going on which just make it feel so incredibly real. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's that's a great one. But, yeah, I, I will say that I have really time and time again gone and visited other Michelle Gondry films I've just never got the same thing that I have from, from Eternal Sunshine. I'd agree with that. I, and I think it was it was kind of tinkering around the edges of my list to this film. It doesn't have as much of a personal impact on me, but I think it is a pretty brilliant film. And yep. I also think it is the best expression of Michelle Gondry as a filmmaker mm. and the best expression of Charlie Kaufman yep. as, a, as, a, as a filmmaker and a writer. I think that it is the, the best of both of those artists out of the kind of last 15 years. Yep. The next film that I've got is Black Swan. Ooh! Yeah. Yeah, I was... um. I, I was thinking. No, not Noah. <laughs> Hang on a minute. Well, look, <laughs> sorry. Look, sorry. I, was thinking, I, I, I just misread that. Sorry. Look, I, I really like Noah. Don't I really like Noah don't, too. Don't, don't get down on Noah. Like I think Noah's a great film, and I think that Aronofsky's made a lot of great films too. I think I was tinkering with the idea of putting the Fountain 
Yeah, I look, I love a fountain. But I felt like I was being a bit wanky by putting The Fountain in there because like, I, I think The Fountain is a brilliant film. It's not a film that I regularly think about or rewatch. No. Or I, I, so, so I had to fall into Black Swan. I think Black Swan is an amazingly tight thriller. I think it, it utilises everything Aronofsky's about in ways that just are razor sharp in their focus. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I yeah. love it. It kind of puts it in a, in a, a, a weirdly sort of uh, fantasy realm. Yeah, so, you know, because some some of the sort of uh, criticisms of the fountain was that like it goes too fantasy when it has that floating beer. I, one of the review <laughs> commercials like it's a floating beer commercial. I was like, I don't know about that, but like, yeah, I think you know you're looking at sort of like inward self paranoia uh, and, and and inward criticism that Aronofsky is so well known for putting on screen. Yeah, and then putting it against the sort of surreal, over the top backdrop of, of the ballet, I think is is great. And it, it just for me, it is the ultimate kind of American retelling of Suspiria in, in some sort okay, of ways. Yeah, like I think there's a, cool a, there's a really yeah. amazing kind of Argento kick to that film. But uh, is that I mean, what's a, what, one of the major reasons you like it? Is that pretty much it? Um, I just think it's an incredibly impactful mm. experience of a film. And it's a film that took an idea that I have no interest in. Mm. I don't like ballet. Mm. I And I heard Aronofsky was making this film and I was like, like, what are you going to do? Yeah. And what he ended up telling is a story about creative obsession. Yeah. And and it reminds, like, looking back now, I, I think that we can kind of find parallels with films like Whiplash. Yeah, yeah. Even in terms of that obsessiveness of, of an artist. Yeah. And how warped it can make your reality. And, and how you constantly feel that you're not good enough or yeah. how you'll never be good enough. And but you'll yeah, strive and yeah, strive yeah. until everything starts falling apart and your reality starts falling apart. And, and I think Natalie Portman's great in the film too. And I must admit, I, I, I often find Natalie Portman quite hard to watch on screen. I think still like her, her performances are sometimes really contrived okay. and, and yeah. really manicured. Uh, but in this, she really goes for it and I think she's great in it. Yeah, I, I think it, it is one of the best films of the 21st century as far as I'm concerned. Excellent. Well, uh, I'm going to get a little bit lighter before I get quite dark for my last <laughs> few. I'm going to talk about Sorrentino as a great beauty. Okay. Uh, now, I I really thought this film. I kind of went into this film not knowing what to expect. Yeah. Um. And you know, there's a there's a great quote. And forgive me if I can't remember who said it, but you know, a great film is like a great journey. Yep. And this film for me is one of those fantastic journeys. You go through the life of the central character as he kind of goes from party to party, feeling this malaise, and there's this fantastic breath of fresh air when he finally discovers that there's more to life uh, and uh, for anyone who hasn't seen the film the film essentially uh, follows a, a, a socialite who is uh, r- renowned for his marvellous lifestyle and parties but he has uh, a, a number of secrets that come out from his past uh, that have kind of structured him in the way he is and he wants to kind of re-engage yep. uh, with his past lives and, and, and the past people that have kind of uh, punctuated those so it's just for me it's just it's a really great poignant piece on on, on, on being someone that you're not and, and you need to be someone else and it also kind of taps into that fantastic kind of Fellini and I think Fellini is a little bit overrated in some regards so you know, f- forgive me for saying that but I think <laughs> he is a, just remember that quote Zachary yeah Burn, Fellini is overrated I think he, you know I think he might be in some regards but this I think it really kind of touches on that 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 kind of strangeness of Fellini matched with you know um the Antonini 
kind of malaise. Like, I yeah, think yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's a great sort of uh, mashup of uh, Italian cinema. Uh, yeah, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm a, a big, huge fan of it. Well, I'm a big Sorrentino fan, and and I I, I love the Great Beauty. Yeah. I, I think it's a great film. I don't think it would have really registered for me on this particular list. And mm. even if I'm thinking about Sorrentino, I'm an enormous fan of This Must Be the Place. Yeah. I I I love that film in in ways that make make it hard to relate to people that don't love that it's film because I I've seen it so many times and every time I watch it I just get so much joy out of it yeah. that it just amazes me that for some reason it's considered a flop in his filmography mm. I think it's pretty magical oh look I I also consider that one and I also actually Youth his most recent film really didn't kind of capture a lot of people but I I really dug it really it I didn't, really didn't capture me it. at all yeah. yeah Youth just did not click I I yeah Sorrentino yeah. can get go down cul-de-sacs where he just obsesses with weird visual set pieces mm. and things that sometimes he loses track of the film as a whole. Yeah. And, and I think The Great Beauties are probably a perfect example mm. of a film that is incredibly cohesive, yes. utilising all the best of Sorrentino. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. But um, yeah, Youth maybe is, is less so. I'm pushing it with pressure. Well, we'll stick with The Great Beauty. That's the one that's actually on the list. So, yeah, but no, okay. look, if you haven't seen it, definitely go and check it out. Cool. Uh, next one I want to talk about is Holy Motors, which <laughs> I... I think Holy Motors is is a masterpiece. I, I I am a huge fan of the film as well. Yeah, so, uh, but I, as soon as I knew we were going to be having this discussion, I knew that this one would be very high on your list. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Look, it's Holy Motors. It's a film from 2012 from a, a French filmmaker by the name of Leos Carax, and he hasn't made many films. In fact, this was the first film in in like 15 or 20 years that he'd made. And, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's been nothing. Post, nothing since. Nothing post no. Holy Motors either. So, no, so yeah. I don't know if it takes him 10 years to put together films. Yeah. I mean, Holy Motors is unlike any film that you could ever conceive of anyway. <laughs> so, I mean, this isn't a guy that makes conventional films. And, no. And Holy Motors, to me, was just such a blast of a, of a different type of cinema, but a film that is so enamoured with the history of cinema and the joys that mm. are contained within cinema mm. that I just loved every second of this film i think it's a near perfect film in many ways i and it's really odd to me that he doesn't make films very often because mm. there's a degree of perfection and precision in in this film as a whole that mm. i think it's the most joyous ode to cinema you could ever imagine mm. and it, it is filled with a, a series of sequences that you could consider as, as non-sequitur style set pieces it's it's random in many ways, but it's also, I think, incredibly holistically pointed in what it's trying to do. And Holy Motors, I think, is, is a brilliant film. I, mm. I can't put together a list of the best films of the 21st century without having Holy Motors in there. No, look, you know, I uh, I saw it in the cinema, uh, a film festival, and, and for me, there's always a great gauge of uh, success at a film festival is by the amount of people that walk out of a film. <laughs> it had walkouts? Uh, and had massive amount of walkouts when I saw it and I was just absolutely engrossed by what I was seeing on the B screen. A similar thing that had a number of walkouts uh, when I saw it in the cinema as well too, uh, in a festival context, uh, was a little movie called Only God Forgives oh. uh, by my, my boy Nick Reffin. Uh, yeah, I, I, I love this film. I love this film not just because it's a middle finger to everyone who went out and brought a jacket from Drive when they became available, uh, but it's just a film that this film wants to hurt you. This film wants to actively upset you, and it's not being 
overtly exploitive while doing it. It's just getting under your skin in the ways that Refn has created this world that you're just smacked into yeah. from the second the film starts. And it's suffocating, it's completely and utterly engrossing, and it's yeah. also incredibly terrifying as oh, well, too. Entirely. So, um, look, I, I think it's uh, Gosling is, is the absolute polar opposite end to his driver character. Oh, uh, and, he's, and he's, for most of the film, his face is just beaten up yep, and swollen. Exactly. Which is, again, yep. I mean, just, that feels like a meta thing going on with Refn going, yep. I'm going to take the prettiest guy around yep. that everyone loves and just mash his face up yep. into meat for most of the movie. Yep. And I, 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 I love that spirit. <laughs> Bless you, <laughs> but, Nick. Um, so why this film, though? Because, mm. I mean, there's probably a few other Refn films that you could have chosen. Yep. Uh, I teed up with maybe... Valhalla Rising as well. Okay, not, Bron- not Bronson? Yeah, I, look, I I like Bronson, and I love Hardy and Bronson. Hardy's but, so good in Bronson. Uh, it's just, I don't know, it's a little bit too sort of like... I've got a problem with movies sometimes where you have characters talking to the screen too much. And not, I, it, for, for the listeners <laughs> out there, Zach just went suddenly into a Larry David style, <laughs> style where the hands are going, I got a, yeah, I had a I problem got, with those uh, characters just, talking some, to the screen. Like, you know, Wolf of Wall Street, it worked. It's great. <laughs> Bronson annoyed me a little bit. There's okay. no talking to the screen. I mean, God forgive us. I think oh. people are actively running away from it. Yes. Um, and I just look, I, I, again, I, you know, um, as I'm sure a lot of listeners do, I see a lot of movies uh, and this reminded me what a movie can do it reminded me of the power of sitting in a room with people and feeling like you're seeing something you've never seen before. Yeah, and I, I and I just think it's the score is tremendous. The the the, the minimalist sort of cinematography is great. Uh, it's just yeah, it's an uncomfortable film. It's a film that I can understand that people didn't appreciate, but I for one really really did. uncomfortable films the ninth film out of my 10 and it's a film that I for a while I wasn't going to include in this top 10 but then I kind of thought if I'm being honest to myself and to films that have been incredibly influential on me in many ways I had to include it and that's Gaspar Noe's Irreversible I think it's an amazing And the party's film. finished now sorry the party's over Hello, <laughs> Hello everyone's gone Anyone Everyone's left Oh okay oh, I'll be here all week <laughs> I, I think it's a stunning film. I think it's um, it is 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 an unpleasant film. Like, needless to say, yeah. it's an unpleasant film. But that's this the point. Is, yeah, and mm. that's the point. I think that what is so important about this film, not only to me, but I think separately looking at cinema over the last fifteen years and moving forward, I think what's important about this film and Gaspar Noe as a filmmaker is the way that he utilizes the form of of cinema and his technique and style to create really kind of physical affective responses and yeah. I think Irreversible is the best example of that even though I think Enter the Void is brilliant yeah. love not so much mm. but Irreversible as, a, as, as an exercise mm. in affecting a viewer oh completely and where I think Irreversible steps up into really significant function and form is the fact that that affect is not just for the sake of affect. He's mm. not trying to trying to mess you up 
just for the sake of messing you up. Mm. There's a strong philosophical through line and point yep. to this film. And that backwards structure where he yep. starts at the end of the film and ends at the beginning mm. is really important in kind of highlighting this philosophical idea mm. of determinism and, mm. and the fact that no matter what you do, your yep. fate is already set. Yep. And it just becomes brutal as the film progresses because the second half of the film mm. a lot of people forget that the second half of the film is incredibly beautiful mm. after you get through the incredibly confronting scenes of rape and murder yeah. you get a second half of the film which is actually the chronological beginning of the mm. story which shows a really beautiful burgeoning relationship there's this extended sequence of Vincent Cassell and Monica Bellucci mm. just cavorting around their apartment mm. newly in love yeah. and it's it's beautiful yeah. it's it's stunning and the final scenes of the film set to yeah. Beethoven yeah. is just absolutely gorgeous to watch like yeah. these are really gorgeous gorgeous uses yeah. of visual cinema yeah. but because you've been so brutalized in the first half of the film, yeah. there's a real discomfort to see something so beautiful, yeah. you're, and you're still reverberating. Well, you kind of kind of punch drunk as well too. Yeah, 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 and, yeah and I yeah. think that that's the the magic yeah. of creating something that is so brutal, and and creating this discordance by mm. having it kind of traverse into. Yeah, I, I think it's a I think it's a stunning film, and I think it's a really important film in terms of what he does technically and what he he innovates yeah. visually and formally. I couldn't go past including no, this film. No, I think you've, you've, you've said exactly everything I would say about it. I mean, any filmmaker that can um, pump in a low frequency well, uh, like, yeah. that, that, that actually is apparently supposed to make you sick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, in some early screenings of the film, he punched, uh, he pumped a low frequency yeah. vibe through the soundtrack, which is yeah. inaudible to hearing, but yeah. creates kind of a the, feeling of nausea. nausea. Which, I mean, that's and people were throwing up. People were throwing up in, in the theatre. Talk about he's, 4D. He's, I mean, yeah. we're, we're, if, if, you, if you need to look at the future of uh, immersive cinema. Maybe, maybe low frequency. Uh, yeah, you know, like just, just you want to make your audience vomit. You want to like, make them feel something. Like, I mean, and that's, I guess, an interesting kind of parallel with talking with about vomit. Like both of them. Well, talking yeah. about vomit, I'm just going to keep the hits rolling, and I could just <laughs> say that Rich and I are available for children's parties. Yes. Uh, if you if you want to book us, yep. uh, I'm going to talk about Old Boy. Okay. Um, Park Chan Wook's seminal. Uh, yeah. Film, which I think is you know it's a Shakespearean tragedy rolled into a high octane uh, piece of Korean film. If I had to have a number eleven on my list, it would have been Old Boy. Yeah, I so uh, I was actually really glad you didn't have this on your list. <laughs> so I could put I could put it in there. But look, I, I saw this again, uh, knowing very little about it. Uh, I'd seen uh, some of uh, Park Chan Wook's other films, uh, yep. The Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, and I just really uh, I had no idea what I was getting into, and I felt from the second the film starts. Yep. That I was getting hit by a freight train, you know, it just it just never stops. Uh, and, and you I, saw this when it came, like back I saw in, it I think at 03 the Melbourne International Film Festival. So I think it was maybe at the 03 or 04. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, and I'd only I'd only seen his previous work on, on, on like really bad home video. Yeah. So it was great to be out. This is the first book film I saw on the big screen. Yeah. Uh, and I'll never forget. I'll never forget seeing a sold out crowd. I will uh, never forget that experience. Yeah. Uh, too. And yeah. it was just like, and I had absolutely no idea what was going to happen next. Yeah. And I think that's something, again, uh, you know, forgive me if I sound uh, sort of uh, derivative in this, but 
if you see a lot of films, you can generally kind of tell where something's going to go yeah. sometimes. And this, I, I, I had no idea. Uh, and it, you know, it, now it's kind of entered that filmic lexicon of that that amazing sequence where uh, the the central character is fighting the, the 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 horde in the in the hallway with the hammer. And yeah. I just remember seeing the sort of hammer with this dotted line going to someone's head and it popping. I'm like, I've never seen anything like yeah. that before. Uh, obviously, recently remade by Spike, Spike Lee. Lee. Spike Lee's <laughs> old boy, um, yeah, Samuel that, L. Jackson, yeah. Um, um, maybe again in in that ten years we might be talking about that, but I don't. We might I some, be talking about it in some way. I in 10 years, somehow but. don't think of it. But yeah, look. Um, again, this is a film that completely reinvented what it was dealing with. I think it completely reinvented it, its source of show. I know it was a a, a manga comic series yep. prior. Uh, I just I've never seen a film like it before, and I don't think I've quite ever seen a film like it since. So no, that's, I, I that's why it's on my list. Had the exact same response to yeah. it. I I remember. I was probably at that same MIF screening Ships as you, like, night. and man, it punched yeah. me in the face. Yeah. It opened a door to Korean cinema that yep. for the next few years, yeah, I totally. inhabited and discovered a lot of new cinema yeah. through this film. Yeah. I think that it's really cool that you kind of tied into that, the, the narrative gambits that it takes, because mm. it does this thing that blew me away mm. when I first saw it, where it reveals who the bad guy is. Mm. Th- like halfway through the film yeah. like and so you think the the, the formula that we grow up with with mm. hollywood films mm. is that if a mysteriously bad thing happens to your main character no. and this figure out of frame is causing it you think that it's gonna the, the film will climax and peak with the reveal of who that is yep. and you'll have that big scene where it's yep. like ha 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 yep. and this is why i was doing it yeah the film, Old Boy gives you that scene halfway through the film. Yeah, and it, opens, and it happens like in the back door. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so, just all of a sudden, yeah. this guy shows up and it's like, yeah, hey, I did that. Yeah, I did that. Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. And the film suddenly careens into yeah. a, a dimension that I'd never experienced before. Yeah. And, and again, yeah, I was sitting going, what the hell is this film doing? Where yeah. is it going? Yeah. And where it goes is so brutally yeah. like it, it just yeah. it just floored me. It, yeah. it is just this is it's great cinema. No. I the reason why I ended up probably dropping it out of my ten is that it's kind of maybe I've seen it too many times now. Yeah. I, I can't really think about it anymore without it being so deconstructed and so mashed up by pop culture. And yeah. it's just oh no, completely. And uh, talking about films that we've also spoken about, how many times we, we revisit them? I haven't revisited Old Boy for, for some time. Yeah, but it left a stamp on me. Oh, and that's why I had to include it. Oh yeah, yeah. that's fair enough. So the final film that I'm going to talk about, I'm kind of hitting my ten here. And this is a really was a really difficult film too. This is the the Tarantino film. So you know, like yeah. there's a there's a few Tarantino films that I could have put here. Yeah. The film that I've decided to put is Inglorious Bastards. That's the I, Tarantino I've chosen. I'm um, in full agreement with you on that. I I could have gone in a variety of directions. You could have. Um, I, I feel like his Kill Bill movies are brilliant. Yeah. I, but I feel like his Kill Bill movies are more the the punctuation mark on a '90s type yes. of Tarantino. Yes. And it's a, this beautiful pop culture mashup of everything Tarantino mm. grew up with and is about. But Kill Bill kind of synthesizes a problem I've always had with Tarantino up before Inglourious Bastards, which was a certain vacuousness to his mm. cinema. This yeah. is a video store guy that hasn't really lived much of his life. He's lived mm. his life through movies. And yeah. as a filmmaker, he doesn't really have much to say. Mm. And I think that that's a common criticism that often was leveled at Tarantino mm. is that there's, yeah, there's an emptiness to his films. Mm. I think Inglorious Bastards is the first film that it felt like Tarantino actually had something to say. It felt mm. like he's grown up a bit yeah. and had something to say and 
he's kind of been digging into these ideas since Inglorious Bastards with various degrees of success. But I feel like Inglorious Bastards just has this perfect fusion of the pop culture Tarantino, mm. the Tarantino that's in love with movies, and also this idea that movies can can change history. Yeah, there's, a, there's a certain kind of revisionist aspect mm. to cinema mm. where cinema creates the narratives yep. that we live by. Yep. And the, the climax of Inglorious Bastards where he burns down a bunch of Nazis using film yep. in a cinema yep. is amazing. And then yep. has kind of the that classic Tarantino over the top, almost like visual porn level of mm. having a, a Jewish person machine gun the head of Adolf Hitler. Yeah, yeah. I think that that is amazing. And that's what mm. cinema in the 21st century should be doing, I think, in really exciting ways. And mm. I think conversations about whether or not it's distasteful or appropriate or right, I think they're great conversations to yeah. have. And, and I think that that's why I think Inglourious Bastards is, I think, the most interesting film in Tarantino's filmography up until now. Yeah. Even though I highly rate Django and yeah. I'm a huge fan of The Hateful Eight. Yeah. I, I think if I had to choose one, Inglourious Bastards is the one. No, I, I completely agree. I, uh, recently at the start of the year, I was asked what my favourite Tarantino film was too. And I really kind of mulled it over and, and Inglourious Bastards was the one that I landed on. Yeah. Um, it just, I remember seeing it too and I, again, it felt like a breath of fresh air. In the Tarantino-verse. Yeah. Because uh, I was very well known for being a fan of Tarantino. I loved his work, but this was really something that I thought was very different. Yeah. Brad Pitt is fantastic in it. Fassbender's fantastic in it. Yeah. Christoph Waltz is fantastic in it. Well, and the fact that the film itself is is a series of extended set pieces, yes. essentially. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. a film that runs for well over two hours, mm. but it's essentially only 10 or 11 scenes. Yes. And the, all those scenes are incredibly distended yeah. and they're conversational and it's just... And it's almost an experimental film mm. from Tarantino who come from this kind of pop culture chop-chop background. Mm. All of a sudden, he gave us a film that's essentially 10 long battle conversations yep. that are gripping and rich and uh, it, it introduced us to Christoph Waltz. It, it did. It did. Oh, look, I, yeah. again, I think... Um, really an incredible kind of update on on, on a filmmaker for, for, for this millennium. So, but like, great stuff. Yep, cool. For what's, me, what's your last well, film? I saved my best for last. I, even, <laughs> though I, even though I said these weren't, uh, even though I said these weren't sequential in order, this one is, uh, it's David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. I, uh, yeah. Yeah, so, look, yeah. And I know that when I put that, that 2001 onwards thing, I knew that, 2002, Mulholland Drive. Oh, no, it was 2001. 2001. It was right on... I was so elated to see it. But I... Yeah. Well, I, 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 look, I, yep. I think, uh, again, I'll, I'll confess, I would watch a David Lynch film if it was filmed out of the phone book. Uh, so, I think, so Inland Empire. So yeah. I was going to say, that is Inland Empire. I think that's... Why do I think of Inland I actually Empire? Really, I actually really like Inland Empire. But that's, uh, for me, I think, uh, you know, Mulholland Drive is, again the summation of a Lynch trajectory that we were seeing in his career, which, and admittedly, David hasn't made many films post Inland Empire. So for me, uh, this is a really great full stop on Lynch's obsession with duality, Lynch's obsession with old-style Hollywood, and Lynch's obsession with a girl in trouble. Which is, you know, if you kind of were to look at a David Lynch kind of cycle, you can see that that is the sort of dividing line between every Lynch film. And Mulholland Drive just... And I love Lost Highway. If well, I was going to pick, if I was going to, it's pick, almost like you read my mind just then because yeah, yeah. I was going to retort with Lost Highway because yeah. they're very similar in, yeah. in structure and idea. They are. They, they are doing similar things, and for me, Lost Highway is a better expression yeah. of the same thing that Mulholland Drive does. Yes, well, th- for me, they're, they're like the flip side of a coin. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think there's a great duality to them if you're looking at duality as a function of Lynch's work. Yes. Like, this is a, a fantastic mirror to, to Lost Highway. Yeah, well, Lost Highway is kind of like the punk rock yeah. idea, and Mahon Drive is the more elegant old yep. cinema idea. Exactly. Uh, and I think there's just such a a real beauty to the film. There's there's this just real, like, for foreboding menace throughout the film that you can never quite put your finger on. And I just, I also just love that it is, you know, it just kind of takes you away. Like the film and it, you know, it, it, in the most kind of, you know, conventional Lynch wisdom is, is, is dreamlike. Yeah. And I hate that people constantly say that Lynch's works is dreamlike, but this is very dreamlike. This, this, this has no real kind of sense to it. And you just kind of move into one thing and you yeah. move into the next thing, but it's done so well. Uh, so yeah, for me, I think uh, Mulholland Drive is, is one of the best films of, uh, of the last 15 years. Uh, and I, I'm really happy to have it uh, very high on my list. Yeah, well, look, I, I, I think it's a really strong film, but mm. yeah, I, I know that there are lots of lists that mm. talk about kind of the best films of the 2000s, and, and, and a lot of people value Mulholland Drive quite highly. Um, yeah. I just, I, I don't yeah. really connect with it. I Maybe it's my huge allegiance to Lost Highway. Yeah, if you can't get like, past it. I mean, but I mean, for me, you know, like, this is like, if we were talking about like a Scorsese trilogy, right? Yeah. This is like... Mulholland Drive is like you take Lost Highway, you take Blue Velvet, and you take a bit of a razor head, and you smash it together, <laughs> and you get Mulholland Drive, because it is this, this weird sort of like outburst of everything that is David Lynch, yeah. but not too much of one thing. Yeah. If, if you take my meaning, like, you know, it's, just, it's, just, it's the perfect synergy between all his relevant interests executed on screen. Cool. Yeah, I can't. Yeah. I can't disagree with that. Can I just say one thing from this conversation that I've noticed while we've been talking? Yes. Neither of us have mentioned someone which I think a lot of people would mention if they were going to talk about the two thousands. It's Christopher Nolan. I. I thought you might. Yeah. Look. I'm happy about that in this, in a way. I. One of the interesting things is that when I decided on that arbitrary two thousand to two thousand one thing. Yeah. Um. It enabled us to not include Memento. And, and, and we were also, uh, when we were speaking about sort of films with a strange linear structure, Memento came to mind. Yeah, which is 2000. Yeah. Um, and I adore Memento. Mm. I adored Christopher Nolan up until around <laughs> Memento. <laughs> um, so taking Memento out of the bag and just thinking 2001 onwards, I don't. No, I, I, don't, was... I don't rate much of Nolan. Like, no. I. I yeah, I'm not. No, I think big... I think it's I think it's a really interesting kind of conversation piece about why we have gravitated away from him when we've spoken about so many other figureheads of cinema. Oh yeah, I'm um, sure IMDb is going crazy exactly oh, somewhere. Yeah. But no, I just thought that was a a point that I, I mean, had to make. I mean, speaking about figureheads, there's no Spielbergs in no. any of our lists, and and I would I was I mean, I'm disappointed that we didn't talk, didn't talk about Lincoln. Well, you know, <laughs> let me tell you a <laughs> let story. Let me tell you a story about Lincoln. Lincoln. I was close to including AI. I yeah. think AI is a really brilliant, under, underappreciated film. But um, yeah, maybe I, for another conversation. Well, I think we're going to have to revisit this, and I think we're going to have to maybe do another episode where we talk about some some lesser appreciated, more weirder on the fringe films mm-hmm. in the last fifteen years. Because I think that there's a bunch of films. As I was kind of thinking, and I made up a bunch of different secondary lists, and it's not even worth going through that now but there's a lot of really fringe interesting weird things that we 
haven't mentioned or talked about that really popped up over the last 15 years that I think is important. So I think we should do a part two. Let's do it. Okay, then. Well, thank you for joining me, Zach. Always and a pleasure, Mr. Harity. I, I take my podcasting hat off now. Yeah, take it off. It take down. it off. You're sweating a bit. It's, I am. There's no ventilation in that hat. Okay, well, thank you again, Zach, and we'll see everyone. Yeah.